I really need to stop taking so much time off from this show because, man, what a weekend. So much news, so many things to cover, and I can tell you right now, we're not going to get to half of it. I mean, just looking at the, the stack of things that I have in my prep for tonight, all of which I'm very eager to talk about, we might get to a third of them, we might get to a quarter of them. I'm going to try my best. But uh, before we even dive into like the hot news, for instance, of course, there's the Michael Cohen situation. Trump's fixer, Trump's lawyer has flipped on him, has entered into a plea deal and claims that uh, the president directed him as a candidate for president at the time to violate campaign finance law. That has some some real implications, both legal and political. We need to get into that. Talk about the broader Mueller investigation. The uh, DFL endorsed Keith Ellison over the weekend in the midst of the ongoing uh, drama surrounding accusations of domestic abuse, sexual abuse that have been leveled against him from a former girlfriend. We need to get into that and what it uh, signals about the the politics of power dynamics that we often talk about here on the program. There's some Me Too stuff and some uh, some updates on science, the intersection between science and politics. So much stuff to get to, and we're going to be hard-pressed to even touch upon it. This hour, starting off, we, we have in studio, and this was planned well in advance, we have Mark Hasse in with us. I'm I'm getting that right, right? Uh, a little more of a Z. It's a, it's kind of like Ozzy with an H. So it's Hasse. Uh, so Hasse. Yes. Thanks, Walter. Need to practice that. Mark Hasse is in with us. He is a candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. And I wanted to have you in for a couple of reasons. Uh, actually, about three of them. The, the first being that I actually know who you are. We've met in the past, and that's that's a context that makes it interesting that you're running for an office like Hennepin County Attorney. Secondly, because you recently came up in a discussion regarding a hot topic, a hot issue that we'll get into later here this hour. Uh, and, and then just thirdly, the the relevance of that position of Hennepin County Attorney to much of the news that we find ourselves discussing when it comes to the relationship between police and the communities that they serve, uh, particularly within Minneapolis, St. Paul, and, and urban areas, Hennepin County, the area that you're, you're seeking to, to serve as a county attorney. And so all those are good reasons to have you in. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Walter. Absolutely. Appreciate you coming in. Closing arguments, name of the program. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming on iHeart Radio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's always great having you with us. You can catch up on past shows, past interviews we've done, and clips and whatnot by searching for Closing Argument in your iHeart Radio app, and our channel will pop right up. The number to join us this evening, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So let's get into it. So you and I met not too long ago, a couple, three years ago or so, at the height of an effort uh, to restore the right to vote to felons who had served their term of imprisonment and were released back into the community. Right. And uh, at that time, you were working uh, in both the capacity as vice president of the Council 
on crime and justice and also a co-chair of the Second Chance Coalition. And it was in that second capacity that uh, I was contacted by a, a um, associate of yours, a colleague of yours, uh, in my position at the time as a vice chair of the Republican Liberty Caucus right. in an effort to to kind of formulate a bipartisan coalition around this idea of, hey, we've got this whole segment of the population that's out there, not in jail, not incarcerated, living in the community, working jobs, paying taxes, trying to reintegrate into law-abiding society that's nonetheless kept from being able to cast a, a ballot come election day, and that this is something that was not intended by the original uh, authors of the state constitution, that you know they never could have anticipated the circumstances that sort of historically developed right. that have have put us in this position of having this huge segment of the population that's not in prison yet cannot vote. And so it was in that context that we first met and, and worked together on that issue. And so I wanted to start there because we're going to get to things that we probably disagree about later in the program. But I wanted to start there with because I think this is important. It's an important area of potential bipartisan agreement and, and real progress that can be made to actually meaningfully change people's lives and to do a better job of aligning our justice system with the first word of that phrase, which is justice, actually right. trying to affect justice. So just kind of give us your your kind of opening thoughts uh, on how you found yourself in that position of advocating for that issue and how it ties into the rest of your work that's led to this run for Hennepin County Attorney. Sure. Uh, thanks, Walter. I, I'm going to go back just a little bit further to, to give you and the audience a little idea of why I even became interested in justice issues at all. And that's a, I have to go back about 20 years when I had a friend who was at the age of 19, she had a boyfriend who was dealing drugs and, you know, I think she knew what was going on. Um, she definitely wasn't a ringleader, um, you know, or heavily involved in this. Um, she had no prior offenses, but she was convicted of conspiracy and under federal mandatory minimum sentencing laws, she was sent to federal prison for 16 years. And I just couldn't believe that we were wasting human potential that way, not to mention my tax dollars, um, and, and it was being done in my name as a citizen of the United States. Um, you know, maybe she should, she should have had some accountability, you know, short sentence, but 16 years in federal prison, I just couldn't um, believe that or stomach it. Uh, so I started, learning, I started advocating on her behalf to get her released. Um, got involved in some national organizations on this, learned more and more about the problems in our justice system, and that's one of the main reasons I went to law school when I was 35 years old. And um, I went to the University of St. Thomas, and uh, after graduating from there and uh, having my own practice for a little while, I got a job at the Council on Crime and Justice, which has worked on prisoner reentry, victim services, um, racial disparities in the justice system and advocating for changes. And while I was there, I got involved with a, a group of other nonprofits that um, were finding that a lot of them were people who are not, uh, organizations that work with people who have come out of prison, served their sentence, um, and were trying to get jobs, housing, support themselves and their families. And they found that, you know, in examples like Goodwill Easter Seals is an organization you think of as, you know, typically helping people with disabilities get employment. They were one of the leader, leaders in this effort. They found that their clients, if they, um, you know, no matter how hard they worked to try to get them, you know, interviews and stuff, if they had a criminal record, they couldn't get a job. And so this, these organizations came together to bring people 
with records to the Capitol to sit in front of policymakers who typically make these decisions without, you know, really knowing, having to hear the stories and knowing what's really going on, to tell those stories and change policies that make it so that when somebody has um, have some kind of a criminal record and they've done what we've asked them to do, that they can actually move on and, and support themselves and their families and reintegrate into the community and begin to do positive things. And there's so many ways that we hold people back that way. And one is we, we marginalize them by not allowing them to vote. Um, you know, they, I think you may have mentioned they're um, you know, paying some form of taxes, even if they can't get a job, they're paying sales taxes, their kids may be in the schools and they have no say in their, in their government. And, um, you know, this is, as you said, when the Minnesota Constitution was written and um, people who were convicted of a felony were not allowed to vote, we didn't even have probation. Right. Everybody that was convicted of a felony was sent to prison. And when, right. so when they got, they could vote. We didn't, Minnesota developed probation later. And now we have one of the, as our criminal justice system has become more and more expansive um, and we've criminalized more things. And, and an example of this is when the Constitution was written, we had about 75 felonies in our statutes. Now we have 375. Right. Yeah. Um, and so our criminal justice system has grown, so we've disenfranchised more and more people. And, and also, uh, people should know that this is not, uh, these laws are created state by state, and every state has different laws. So in 18 other states, people can vote once they're in the community. Mm-hmm. And in two states, they can vote while they're in prison, Maine and Vermont. And most of Western Europe allows people to vote in prison. And so we were advocating to move our system in Minnesota so that rather than waiting until, you know, in Minnesota we do have very long probation terms often for drug offenses, for example. I recently met a woman who uh, is about 30, and she had a drug conviction, and she got 40 years of probation. Mm. So she won't be able to vote until she's about 70. And the county she comes from uh, typically doesn't do early discharges, which is something that's sometimes available. Yeah, the you cite the two things that really motivated me to get on board with uh, advocacy on that issue of restoring the vote to people with felony convictions who are released out of prison, integrated back into the community. And it's one, I think, I think this really is the, the top one in my view. At no point has the legislature or the people ever delib- engaged in a, in a meaningful deliberation that resulted in this being the policy. Mm-hmm. It was an accidental policy. It was something that was the, the kind of tangential effect of the growth of government without really any sort of guidance or deliberation or intent. Right. You know, the, as you note, when you only had, you know, 75 felonies on the books at the time the state constitution was ratified uh, and you didn't have a probation system, Obviously, at no point in the consideration of this is going to be our rule of if you have a felony conviction, you can't vote. Was there any sort of anticipation or or thoughtful consideration of whether or not we were going to have people actually engaged out in the community who can't participate in the political process? And the other compelling argument, as I see it, is that we need to ask ourselves what the objective of our criminal justice system is. And, you know, I put forward the the seemingly controversial notion that it ought to be justice, that it ought to be bringing the scales into balance. And that part of that is restoring not just victims in terms mm-hmm. of them being indemnified for harms that have been uh, perpetrated against them, but also restoring perpetrators. Like our object, we, we basically have a couple of different choices in this regard. We can sew a scarlet C on somebody's outer garment 
and call them a criminal until the day they die and treat them as a second-class citizen. Or we can establish, here's the penalty, here's the price you have to pay, and once you've paid that, you're one of us again. You're part of the family again, broadly speaking. And we're going to treat you accordingly until or unless or until you cross the line again or, or engage in recidivism. Right. And I think when you when you have a system that anticipates that people will continue to commit crimes and will continue to to fit in this cookie cutter mold of being a criminal, then they're going to oblige you, especially when you're denying them the capacity to conduct themselves as a law abiding citizen, getting a job, voting and what have you. Right. So, you know, the the expectations that we set for people can become self-fulfilling prophecies in terms of how the direction their lives tend to go. How does and I know you agree with that, um, you know, so completely how how does that those principles or those concepts apply to your broader sense of of justice and you know i'm gonna you're gonna have like a 30 seconds to answer this really complicated and important question and then we got to go to a break and we can address it on the other side but your your broadest sense of the concept of justice and how it applies to the role you're seeking now which is hennepin county attorney right so i completely believe that we have to hold people accountable when they hurt other people i I totally agree with you on that. And I, I also agree with you, but once we, we've done that, you know, to keep holding them back is not just, and not only is it not just, as you say, it's, you know, the, a, a primary duty of a county prosecutor is to ensure public safety. And if we really want long-term public safety, like you say, we have to create pathways for people to be successful. And there's specific things that the county attorney can do um, in their discretion to make that happen. And I, you know, I'm looking forward to maybe getting to talk about that some more. You will definitely have that opportunity. We're going to get into relatively recent headlines and how they provide the, the stage upon which we can explore exactly that. Uh, we're speaking with Mark Hazy, a candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. My name is Walter Hudson. Closing argument, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You can join the conversation as well, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Talking with Mark Hazy in studio tonight. He's a candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. And, you know, that's an office that on its face, you might think, well, Hennepin County Attorney, why do I care about that? Well, think about it. How many times have you heard reference to the Hennepin County Attorney in the news involving prominent stories, usually involving you know, police shootings and the consideration of charges and the potential formation of grand juries? This is an important position, and there's a lot of debate right now regarding what role that position should play uh, in those particular areas. And uh, there's a lot of uh, criminal justice issues that have been playing out in the public discourse, uh, both recently and over the years. And so that makes positions like this one more relevant than they have ever been. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's get back into it. So before the break, you know, we were introducing you, giving your background a little bit and talking about your the general philosophy that you're bringing to this pursuit of uh, the, the post of Hennepin County Attorney. So let's let's apply it to a recent headline. Let's get into because you know I mentioned these these three reasons why I thought to have you on the program. One of them was very recently the the week that the news came out that they released the body cam footage of the officers involved in the Thurman Blevins shooting 
and uh, current Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman uh, announced that he was not going to pursue charges against those officers in that shooting. That weekend, I was a guest on Wrong About Everything, a podcast uh, featuring a bipartisan uh, pantheon, if I do say so (laughs) myself, of commentators. And uh, we talked, we had a pretty aggressive conversation about the Blevins shooting, emotionally charged. And uh, Karen Moratz brought your name up. And that's how I learned that you were a candidate, Ah. by the way. And Mm -hmm. it was like, like, as she said, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And kind of put a bookmark there and like, I'll come back to that. But she brought you up in the context of, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody in this office of Hennepin County Attorney who would approach things differently? And so the question that immediately popped into my mind was, how would Mark Hazy approach things differently in a case like the Thurman Blevins shooting? And then you want me to tell you. And then I want you to tell me. <laughs> so I was prepared for this. So the prosecutor has a very unique role. Um, on the one hand, the prosecutor, in, co- in order to ensure public safety and respond to crime, has to have a close working relationship with law enforcement. Um, at the same time, it's the prosecutor's role to protect the public from any abuses of law enforcement, um, to hold law enforcement accountable if they break the law or if they abuse their power, just like any other public official. And uh, for those, because of that unique role, I think it would be irresponsible for me to say I would have done this in this case or this in that case. Sure, sure. Um, And I also, because of that uniqueness of the role, what I'm proposing to do is bring some more independence to those decisions. Because another problem we have is we've got a loss of public confidence in when those decisions are made. Mm -hmm. And so the specific policy proposal I've put forth is to create an independent police charging advisory panel. Um, This would be... Uh, a small group of people who have criminal law experience, maybe retired judges or retired criminal attorneys, who would um, be a, a diverse group. Um, I would still make the decision about charging, and I would not use a grand jury unless you know it was it was needed for some reason or there was a unique situation. But I do like the transparency of the prosecutor making that charging decision. But I would use this panel to advise me, and that would do a, a few things. It would. Um, mitigate any bias I or my office might have. It would help me make the best decision. And then I would hope that it would bring some community confidence in that decision. Um, and because those decisions are um, often somebody's going to be unhappy with that final decision. Right. Or there may be other reasons that we're unhappy with it. Is it the underlying law that people are unhappy with? Is other things that happen? But once we can move beyond, you know, this was a decision that was made under the law, which is what I have to do as a prosecutor is, is apply the law. Mm-hmm. Now there's discretion there. And I do say that, you know, I think it's important that we hold police accountable. And if I have questions about whether uh, there's enough to charge I would I would be more likely to charge so that a jury could determine that. But sometimes it's just, you know, it's pretty clear under the law, but the public's, because of other things that, you know, or different people are going to be unhappy with the decision. So that's why I want to bring that independence. I would also um, advocate for, um, you know, if if the legislature wanted to create an independent, an independent prosecutor's office to try those cases or um, work with other prosecutors in other counties to um, share that prosecution responsibility. Because I think it is really important that, one, the county attorney can work closely with the police and that the public can have confidence in these decisions. So starting where we left off there, independent prosecutor, that's an intriguing idea. It seems on its face that the 
the motive or the premise for that would be let's s- mitigate any potential conflict of interest that exactly. exists between because one of the ca- things that's been cited by critics of the status quo is this notion that the the county attorney or whatever prosecuting attorney or whatever entity it is you're talking about has a inherent incentive to be buddy buddy with the cops because they're investigating the crimes that attorneys are going on to prosecute and we're all on the same team and aren't we all one big happy family right. and so that that is cited as a as evidence of potential bias that could inform a charging decision um such as the one we saw in the in the Blevins case and have seen in in other cases as well uh so that's interesting i i would be I'd be interested in fleshing that out in terms of what an independent prosecutor, what the potential downside of that could be, you know, if you, you end up getting kind of out of control uh, prosecutions or witch hunts, I hate to use that term in the current moment, but, you know, what sort of mitigation there would be or, or check or limit on that. Would this be, well, independent, so they're not going to be part of your office, right. but would you have any way in your view of countering the work that they did or putting ha- getting getting a, having a say in the the process moving forward or would you just be completely out of it i think if it was that you know that independent prosecutor model versus the advisory panel i'm talking about i, I don't think I, I would have much control and i do have to say that um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna uh condition my support of something like that on the details like i think there are details to work out to make sure that it's you know, really, you know, whoever's doing it has really their best prosecutors on it, whether mm-hmm. it would be the AG's office or other county attorneys, um, that there's some checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know, I don't know all the details of what that would look like, but that's why I'm not, you know, I'm advocating this advisory panel to keep control sure, over right, that, but yeah. I, I'd like to look at and try to, you know, and potentially support that independent concept. And I know our, our current um, county attorney has said he, he doesn't support that because he wants the local elected of, you know, official to have that right. accountability. Um, you know, I, I get that argument, but I think that the, the mitigation of the potential bias and the, and the confidence in the decision is, is more important than that. So once again, I'm asking you a, a, a potent and potentially complicated question with when we're up against a break. So I apologize for that. But with the, the whole concept of this advisory panel, and I know you said you'd you'd pick people, or people would be picked. I'm, I don't know that you're the one who's picking them that have some sort of legal expertise. But what if the panel were to come back with something that doesn't actually jive with the law as such? You know, for instance, in the in the Blevins case, and I, I know you you don't necessarily want to speak to the specifics of a particular case, but f- by all accounts what could you have possibly charged these officers with? And and if the advisory panel had come back and said, you should charge them with X, and it's something that you know as a prosecutor you're never going to be able to, to get a conviction on, do you go with their advice or do you go against it? And if you go against it, what's the point of the advisory panel at that point? Well, I'd have to, I'd have to go against it. I mean, I would be the, like I said, I'm the one, it's just an advisory panel, so I'd ultimately, ultimately be the one making that decision. Sure. Um, I would choose those those members. Um, so I would choose people that, you know, I would really closely vet their background and make sure it's, you know, are, are, are they have a history of upholding the law, but also have, um, you know, will have confidence, some confidence from the, from the community. Um, and you're right. If you know, it's, if they, if I went against their advice, that could get complicated. But, sure. Um, sure. I, ultimately, I would make that decision until you know we can agree on some kind of independent prosecutor model. 
Mark Hazi in studio with us, candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. We'll continue with him and your phone calls when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Closing argument. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. We have Mark Hazi in studio with us this evening. He is a candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. And uh, you can ask him questions at 651-989-5855. Brett Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. We've been talking about, uh, amongst other things, the role that the county attorney plays in situations such as the Thurman Blevins shooting and the, the aftermath of that, the examination of the evidence and consideration of whether or not to charge officers with a crime. Of course, if a couple of weeks back here, we got the news that the current Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman was not going to pursue charges against those officers, and that announcement was made hours after body cam footage was released. And we've been talking about, you know, not necessarily the the particular details of that case, but what changes could potentially be made uh, in order to mitigate some of the community concern that arose around it. So let's start by talking with Tony in Mendota Heights. Welcome to the program. You're on with Mark Hazy. Hey, Walter, thanks for taking my call. Mark, you sound like a great candidate. If I was in Hennepin County, I'd vote for you. Thank you. Um, so I just uh, just have more of a, a commentary, and I would like to hear your uh, opinion, and I'm not a, a lawyer, so forgive me if I don't use the right terms or whatnot, but with going on the uh, police shootings, um, it seems to me that there's a different standard that uh, grand juries or, or prosecutors use to determine um, you know, whether or not the shooting was justified. And it seems what police officers use often throughout the country is uh, the reason that I was uh, afraid for my life. And that alone is a subjective uh, type judgment. So if you have a jury or anyone else trying to decide that, you're basically trying to go into that officer's body and make that decision. And, And I'm wondering, you know, should we and how would it occur, change the standard of proof for the the standard that uh, prosecutors use whether to charge or not and the and juries use to decide verdicts um, in terms of uh, the officer why do they get to use that sort of an excuse or justification you know when uh, other people can't you know that there, there was that uh, shooting of the Australian woman in um, in Minneapolis in South Minneapolis and the firecrackers went off or something like that and the officer got scared, and I, I think he's probably being charged right now. But it, if the jury decides that he was afraid for his life, which is probably what he's going to say, uh, can he get off uh, from that? And, and so my, my main question is, how can we change that standard, or is it necessary to change, or should we leave it how it is? Appreciate the call, Tony. Appreciate the Thank question. You. Yeah, that's a really good question, and um, you got the – the standard roughly correct there, Tony, if the officer believes that their life or the life of others are in danger, then they're able to use deadly force. Um, that's a, a state law. There's also a U.S. Supreme Court law that um, requires the analysis to be done. You know, there's very legal wording around this, but basically at the time, at the moment, 
that they use deadly force. Um, and the underlying center could be, you know, it's, the, it's a state law that could be changed. Um, you know, a reason for it is that, uh, that it's different than a civilian standard, you know, like a stand your loss, stand your ground um, type standard where in Minnesota you have to use all possible means to retreat. I mean, we, we can't expect officers. We, we put them. Um, oh, they literally the, have the opposite duty. Exactly. We put them <laughs> in the community with guns to protect right. um, the public and and um, stop somebody from causing harm. So we can't have a, a, a retreat standard. Um, and so we have to give them some discretion. Um, it's a it's a difficult um, issue and it's a difficult job. I was telling Walter that I, I did some law enforcement work when I was an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, I went through use of force training. I I was mostly crawling around uh, fish holds off the West Coast, so it wasn't like street policing. But um, I, I do have some appreciation for that, and um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a difficult position that police are in. But um, I think it's worth looking at that standard. I think the public now is is wanting to um, at least be able to relook at that and see if it's what we really need. Maybe we need to have that conversation. And maybe if we did, there would be more understanding of, of why we have it, or maybe there's ways that we can change it. I don't have, you know, something in mind right now that would, um, you know, I'd propose to change that. I know there's been efforts in California to change the standard. Um, Minnesota actually has one of the, um, has a standard that also it requires necessary. Uh, there's a word necessary in there, necessary deadly force. Um, or if, if if the deadly force is necessary to protect the officer or others, and other states don't have that, and some states have really no standard at all. Mm. Let's go to Anthony in Minneapolis. You're on with Mark Hazy, candidate for Hennepin County Attorney General or Attorney. Anthony, how's it going? Yes, sir. Yep. Yes, sir. Hey, how's it going? I, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so I was calling. I, I want to talk more as much as these larger topics, you know, with the South Minneapolis shooting and just police shootings in general, they do matter and they're tragic. But I want to talk about some of the smaller things. Like, perfect example, I was 21, rowdy college kid, and we got in a bar fight, a couple buddies of mine, and one, they charged us with fifth degree. Well, they charged us assault. We were arrested, and they, the attorney came to me and my other buddy, and they threw us on a fifth degree assault plea, no same or similar for a year. I asked for a continuance paid $2,800 for an attorney. My attorney did what he had to do, and the charges were dismissed. My friend, who happened to be African-American, didn't have that opportunity. He took his charge. He had a fifth-degree assault on his record, along with he couldn't purchase a firearm for three years. He was a college student as well. He graduated. He was able to get expunged and worked it out. What are you going to do about these things in the sense that if you guys know there's not a case, why don't you just tell us that up front? Don't give us a public pretender and then make us take some BS, you know, just to you scare us and you, you throw something and see if it sticks. You're, it's the, the government. It's innocent till proven guilty. It's not your job to throw something and see if it sticks and if we take it because we can't afford to get an attorney. You know, how about you just don't tell us, tell us up front, like we don't have a case. Nobody's showing up to testify against this there's nothing going on like sorry and that's what my attorney was able to figure out but i had to pay twenty eight hundred dollars and that was on contingency that it didn't go to trial if it went to trial it would have been who knows how much more that was just for him to go through the motions one court appearance i appreciate the i appreciate the story anthony thank you so much yep no problem thanks anthony
I think Anthony is going to like your answer because I have uh, good reason to anticipate what it's going to be. Well, it, it, I, I like the question. It, it actually opens up a couple of things, and I'll, I'll just touch on one and, and get into more detail on the other. But one is that how much money you have does determine your treatment in the justice system. Um, if you can pay a private attorney, you're going to get, just because um, you know our public defenders are, are overburdened with many, many cases, they just can't spend much time with their clients. Um, if you have an attorney, uh, a private attorney, you're often going to end up doing better. Another issue, uh, another way that we do that is the cash bail system. And we could spend a whole half hour speaking about cash bail, but I'd like to reform that. So how much money you have doesn't determine whether you're held before you even go to trial. But the other, the, the, the whole charging sort of um, uh, philosophy around prosecution is something I'd like to change as well. And what I mean by that is, Prosecution in the in the U.S. and this is one of the reasons that we have you know such a we have mass incarceration in the U.S. compared to other countries and we have a very high rate of correctional control here in Minnesota even though we have a small prison population we we convict people a lot of people um, relative to the population size and put them on probation is that sort of the typical philosophy with prosecution is take what the police send bring in and charge as high as you can. Right. And get the high, you know, to get a lower plea deal. Right. Um, and, and go for the highest sentence you can. Right. And there's, um, there's a new prosecutor in Philadelphia. His name's Larry Krasner. He's done something that I like, which I would like to implement as well, which is to change how that, um, dynamic happens by just changing your direction to the line, the line prosecutors. And what, what has been happening typically is, um, you know, the prosecutor gets that general direction to charge high take the highest sentence, and if they want to go lower for some reason, they have to get permission from somebody above them. Hmm. And, of course, those folks are kind of going to be reluctant to do that. What Krasner's done for a whole um, slate of crimes, there's exceptions to this, you know, some of the more violent, more serious crimes, is say, and this is because, you know, incarceration can be, um, you know, overly harmful to people if it's not necessary, overly expensive. These consequences that the caller talked about um, can have a really... uh, harmful effect in somebody's life is go for the charge that you think you can get that's fair and and um, ask for a sentence that that lower end of the sentencing level and if you have reason to increase that then you get permission to do that because there may be cases right. where we want to increase the charge or the right. sentencing and I just like how that flips it all on its on its head and it puts a little more burden on the state mm-hmm. to make the case um, that something more harsh or, or, or certain, um, you know, higher sentence should is is um, warranted, and um, that's that's how I think it should be. I think that burden should be there. Yeah, there's this the the current measuring stick of how good you are as a prosecutor is how many convictions you've gotten, and you know how how uh, great those convictions were in terms of the the degree of what you were able to charge somebody with. And, and, and about I, winning cases and about winning cases. And yeah. what I, what I've heard you say in other forums, and I think it's right on is that the objective of a prosecutor shouldn't be convictions. It should be affecting justice. Yeah. You know, how do we affect justice in this case? Right. And if the answer to that is not to charge somebody, then that's what you should do. Right. I like to cite the American Bar Association standards for prosecutors um, and those standards say the primary duty of a prosecutor is to seek justice with, uh, within the bounds of the law, not merely to convict. Right. And I think, you know, prosecutors will cite that, but I don't know that it's been followed well in our, in our past. 
We'll wrap up with Mark Hazy, candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. When we return, closing argument, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Talking with Mark Hazy, candidate for Hennepin County Attorney, in studio live with us tonight on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's go right back to your calls. Let's welcome Jamar on the program, host of Black Republican, Black Democrat, heard Saturdays at 6 p.m. over this very air. Welcome to the show. Thank you, man. How are you, Walter? Doing good. So, so uh, I like a lot of things that you were saying. That, that, that's right on. What I wonder uh, is if you happen to win, and you, you're, you're going to be working with some of the, a lot of these officers uh, uh, if you don't have a relationship with them already. We do know that here in Hennepin County, there are the laws are interpretedly different than they're supposed to be enacted, especially when it comes to black and brown people. Can you truly say that when it comes to have, rather not working with a rogue cop and that cop needs to be, and we know Freeman ultimately has that, has the, the call on whatever. But can you, are you truly going to work with road cops and turn those, not work with, excuse me, not work with road cops and remember that it's the constituents that you work for? Because it's easy now to campaign and say what you'll do. But when you get that job and you're faced with the pressure of working with these dudes that you might have to say did bad things, uh, and then you get shunned by your fellow attorneys. Are you willing to? Is it? Is are you really willing to accept that? Oh, thanks for the question, Jamar. My short answer is yes. Um, I'm 50 years old. I've never run for office before. I'm running for this office because I've spent the last 10 years uh, working to make our justice system work better for everybody, and that's why I'm running now so that I can do the right thing and. Um, you know, like I said earlier, if, uh, if a police officer is abusing their power, um, has violated, broken the law, um, I think they absolutely need to be held accountable and I'm not going to hesitate to do that, um, regardless of what I think somebody might think about it. And I'm more than certain with the, any, any Minneapolis police officers right now, excuse me, do you have a relationship with, uh, members of the Minneapolis police officers right now? Um, I wouldn't say I have a relationship with any any of them. I've spoken with some of them, um, uh, but I don't have any uh, ongoing relationship with any of them, no. Well, good luck, man. I really did like some of your answers. I think that you sound like a, a, a good guy, and I, I like some of your answers, so uh, good luck. You might have my vote. Okay, thanks. Well, Appreciate keep, follow, it, keep following the campaign until November, and hope I'll, I hope I'll uh, earn your vote in the end. We'll, we'll definitely hear from Jamar, or you will definitely hear from Jamar uh, if you stray from his prescribed path. I, I hope I do. You that. <laughs> All right, let's, let's squeeze in Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Thanks. So I always wonder about this. Why are we talking about this voting rights? Why aren't we talking about restoring all civil rights and constitutional rights to anybody who isn't in prison? We already have a way to put these people back in custody whether they do something illegal or not, if they're a danger to themselves or others, why are we worrying about that? I assume you're specifically referencing Second Amendment rights. Yep. Mark Ozzie. Good question. Um, of course, uh, there are uh, some reasons to suspend those constitutional rights, I think. Um, if somebody's committed a domestic violence offense, for example, but 
the way our current state law works is it's a lifetime ban, and it applies to any crime of violence, which includes uh, drug possession. Um, and I think that is too restrictive of Second, Am- Second Amendment rights. Sure, sure. Um, Given the broader systemic problems with the prohibition of drugs and the drug war and what have you. Appreciate uh, that answer and all of the participation this hour from folks. Really appreciate the engagement. Can you tell us more about you know, people who are interested in learning more about your campaign and following it through till November? You know, there's a lot of things going on electorally this year. We've got, you know, two statewide U.S. Senate races, uh, open governor's seat and what have you. But these more local offices are important as well. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, if you could uh, visit my website, it's uh, www.markhazy.org. So it's M-A-R-K-H-A-A-S-E.org. Appreciate it. Appreciate you coming in tonight. Thanks it's been, a lot for having me, Walter. Yeah, it's been, been great. great to have a, a conversation in bipartisan fashion about issues that you know really transcend the partisan divide. I think you know justice is something that that shouldn't change in terms of how you view it, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. The number to join us. We'll get into all the news when we come back. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Conversation with Mark Hazy running for Hennepin County Attorney. Now, Mark, as you know, maybe you didn't even realize it if you were listening to the program because we didn't really talk about it all that much. But Mark's a Democrat. He's been endorsed by Democrats. He's running as a progressive. But you wouldn't necessarily know that automatically just listening to what he has to say about criminal justice and the concept of justice generally. And it is fascinating because I know, you know, if we strayed off the topic of justice and criminal justice and the role of the county attorney to get into statewide or national politics and to talking about some of the things we're about to talk about here regarding Donald Trump and Michael Cohen and the Mueller investigation and uh, Keith Ellison and the DFL endorsing him and all that, you would see the differences start to emerge between Mark and I. There's, there's no doubt about it, but there is this opportunity. I think there, there's, this is the, one of the intersections or touch points, however you want to describe it, where there's real potential for meaningful work to be done across the aisle. I know a lot of people hate that idea of, of working across the aisle, but when you're working across the aisle to affect something that is good, when you're working across the aisle to affect something that is just and moral, you should take advantage of those opportunities when they come along. And I think criminal justice is, is one of those ripe areas for uh, that we could leverage in order to get something done for the people of Minnesota and, you know, folks in Hennepin County. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. So I want to start with this. There's so much to cover, so much hot news going on right now, but we would be remiss if we didn't begin by pointing out the carnage and bloodletting 
and breakdown of civilization that occurred in Minneapolis today as tens of thousands of Muslims converged upon U.S. Bank Stadium to plot our demise and undermine the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, if I hadn't have gone to the office today, I, I would have uh, definitely stopped by. I'll tell you, I worked in Minneapolis all day today, coincidentally, in, in my day job, which takes me around the metro from day to day. I never know exactly where I'm going to go. It just so happened that today I was spent most of my time in downtown Minneapolis. And I noticed some families that appeared to be, based upon their garb, appeared to be Muslim. And that was about it. Like families walking down the street, uh, attractive families who seemed very civil and well-behaved. Well, if you look at these pictures here on the City Pages article, it's just people gathered in a circle in a field. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, you uh, you take you take away the garb and you shift the racial dynamic here, and this could be any picture from literally any social event anywhere in Minnesota. Any county fair, any church picnic, I mean, the the picture here is of an inflatable bouncy house and kids jumping in it and people hanging out on a lawn. What's more American pie than that, you tell me? This is the piece from over at City Pages. And I know City Pages, right? You know, lefty, lefty source. Oh, you can't trust them. Well, okay. I it, I can't do anything for you. The, the fact remains, nothing happened in Minneapolis today. Some people got together. They said prayers. Their kids jumped in bouncy houses, and they ate some stuff. And there were no animals sacrificed. There, nothing was set on fire. Nobody was bombed. And to our knowledge, no plans were made to bomb anything. So I, I'd say we came out okay on this. And that was the assessment of Hannah Jones over at City Pages as well. She said, earlier this month, a subset of Twitter thought it had stumbled upon a secret Muslim plot. We talked about this on Thursday. Users warned of a gargantuan gathering. Some posts said over 50,000 Muslims and a mass slaughter of animals all to take place in Minneapolis's beloved U.S. Bank Stadium. Some recommended protesting with a massive pork tailgate. Some tagged animal rights organization PETA. Some tagged the Vikings, though it's unclear what they were expected to do about it. And then they give examples of posts that were put out there. If any of them had showed up Tuesday afternoon, they would have taken in the true nature of this mysterious religious affair. Pony rides and a Mickey Mouse bouncy castle. Muslim community leaders got together a few months ago and organized a gathering they're calling Super Id. It was to be a big festival on the annual Muslim holiday with a little over 20,000 worshipers expected to attend. No, they said there would be no animal sacrifice at the stadium. No, this was not part of some secret Islamic agenda. U.S. Bank happened to be available, so they used it. There would be a carnival outside the stadium after prayer, complete with inflatables, ponies, and laughing children on a trampoline. Anyone, Muslim or non-Muslim, was invited to join. And this is something that we pointed out on Thursday. You know, the if if you really think this is some sort of secret plot to do anything nefarious go there go there and monitor it as long as you don't break the law as long as you don't break the rules and start getting in somebody's face and yelling and harassing them they're not going to kick you out they're not going to keep you from coming in pony rides in a mickey mouse bouncy castle it sounds almost like they're assimilating you're right <laughs> that's a solid solid point you know that that's 
one of the I, I saw a lot of social media engagement on this over the week. I especially saw a lot of social media engagement on this over the weekend because yeah. because after our show on Thursday, I've become something of a target for the the animosity, which is just weird. It's so bizarre. You hear, here's what's weird to me, just as a, as an aside, as a personal aside. I host a talk show, obviously on a major market radio station, whereby I'm expected to come on the air 9 to 11 weeknights, two hours a night, every single day, Monday through Friday, and have something of import to say about the news of the day. I spend less time thinking about this stuff than the people on Twitter who are all flustered about what was going to happen at Super It today. I mean, the amount, when you look at just the posts, and the amount of time that went into make, crafting these posts that were directed at me over the weekend. What are you doing with your life? My God. Uh, let me tell you what I was doing. I was spending time with my family. I was out on the lake. I was fishing. I was hanging out with my kids. And I wasn't paying you any mind whatsoever. It wasn't until like Sunday night, Monday morning that I started to check in and be like, oh, geez, somebody's been busy thinking about me. That's nice. They should have sent me some flowers, I guess. It's just, it's bizarre to me that people are this obsessed. And and here, here's an important insight on this. I think this is a takeaway. I was listening to some Matt Walsh commentary, catching up on his podcast over the weekend, and he had a piece uh, uh, that made this point that it was apropos. It, it felt like Providence coming across it. When we encounter people in our lives who are seemingly filled with hate, filled with bigotry, filled with irrationality, filled with a kind of obsessive fixation upon irrelevancies and nonsense, the the appropriate response to that is to pray for them. Sincerely. To, t- to take a step back, to subdue our own sense of being offended, to subdue our, our, subdue our own sense of personal honor and having to defend our our honor and ourselves and think about them. Think about what they need. Think about what their behavior signals about where they're at in their life and beseech upon our Lord God to intervene and help them and get them on the right track. Because to have this level of obsession with a group of people, that you you probably personally have no association with whatsoever, right? Like, how many Muslims do you know in your life that you're engaged with on a day-to-day basis? Probably none, if you're one of these people who is super obsessed with what was going to happen at Super It. That's another thing that I've noticed, is that people who, there seems to be an inverse proportional relationship to the number of Muslims you actually know and how concerned you were with what was going to happen today at U.S. Bank Stadium. It's almost as if ignorance has some sort of correlation with bigotry. Let's talk to Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Oh, hey, Walter. How's it going? It's going. Hey, uh, I was saying about the Muslim thing. Um, I know a few Muslim people, and um, as far as I know, it's a real peaceful religion. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's... People are scared, like, just like when the Irish came here, there's signs in the, in the window says, no Irish need to apply. Right. Which... So I think it's just like that. You, you, you know, it's, 
it takes time, but yeah. from the people I know, they're real peaceful. They don't want no trouble, mm-hmm. you know, and they just want to assimilate. Well, and, and that's... I know they, they, they became citizens already, and they, they love this country. Yeah. Appreciate so. your thoughts, Chris. Appreciate your thoughts. And, and that's the thing is the one of the things that's been pointed out by other conservative commentators, competitors of mine, who I would love to credit, but it's a bad business decision to do so. One of the things that's been pointed out is that this there is definitely this disconnect between the continuing cry for assimilation and the charge that Muslims aren't willing to assimilate, that Somali refugees aren't willing to assimilate. There's a disconnect between that raised concern and opposition to any opportunity that they have to actually engage in assimilation, right? Like, what's more apple pie? What's more American than, hey, let's get together and have a community picnic and say prayers, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a, an American tradition going back to the founding, right? I mean, yeah, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think we need a little bit more prayer in our society, a little bit more fixation upon what, what we can do as a community for each other within a private context, a private institutional context, such as your religious community, as opposed to constantly turning to the state all the time. I thought that's what we wanted. I thought that's what assimilation was, right? But, you know, no. And, and you also see this manifest in the concern over who paid for this. One of the stupid posts I saw today was some gal talking about how, well, how, how is it that a bunch of refugees can afford to rent out U.S. Bank Stadium? To which the, the obvious and very reasonable answer is they're not all refugees. Like, seriously, you thought that they, they, they got off the proverbial boat and just walked over to U.S. Bank Stadium and, and threw together a celebration. No, these are people who, as Chris points out, are established. They have jobs. They pay taxes. Well, I think that the organizers of the event kind of approached it with they were going to take a loss on this event. The entire thing, like the tickets to it were free. They were running on donations. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, I saw, and maybe it was different depending on where you went to get tickets, because I originally saw an Eventbrite $15, and then I heard in a news report $5, and maybe by the time they got to the actual day, they would let people in for free. I well, know. I think the like to ride the ponies and the Mickey Mouse uh, oh, okay. bouncy castle, it was money. Okay, gotcha. Appreciate that. All right, we'll uh, we'll move off this when we go. I mean, we'll take your phone call if you want to call in about it. But I want to get into. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world other than the non-event that was Super Ed in Minneapolis today. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. This is fun. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Got a couple of calls on the event which took place at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis earlier today. Super Id. Id El Ada is the festival in question. An Islamic celebration. Apparently, it's a big deal for them. It's like right up there with Easter and Christmas in terms of uh, relevance to their faith. 
and they celebrated it today in Minneapolis. And the, the in anticipation of this, there are a lot of folks who, who were concerned about this show of power and uh, what it meant for the undoing of Western civilization. And uh, you know, from all accounts, I think we're okay. I think nothing has really changed in our lives. Uh, I think the sun is still going to come up tomorrow and uh, nobody's rights have been violated. Nobody's been blown up. Everything's pretty much on track with exactly where we left it the day before. Let's talk to Terry and Blaine. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, I've listened since your show began. Um, I generally agree with you. On this topic, it's not so much the event that, you know, is taking place today and tomorrow, whatever. It's the fact that we have had terrorists attack this country that were Islamic. Mm-hmm. Europe has a huge problem with the unvetted Islamic immigration they've allowed. I mean, you <laughs> just check the news. It, it, it could be worse here. The common sense guidelines for immigration have to be employed as to who we take into this country. I mean, if you look at Molly Tibbetts, um, that's, that could have been preventable. I'm sorry, if there had been a wall, maybe that guy wouldn't be here. So uh, has many, it, many, has uh, it come out? People are going to have to die before something is done about it. Bring us up to date on Molly Tibbetts, because the last I saw, they had they had arrested a guy, but they didn't offer any details as to his background. Oh, yeah. So what he, are you referring he's to? He's an illegal immigrant, I'm 95% sure, from the news stories. It's credible news organizations that are reporting that at this point. So... In the context of this event and the rhetoric that surrounded or anticipated this event, I'm unclear as to how, because even if we take everything you say for granted and we we consider it for the sake of argument, I'm unclear as to how that... that There's a lot of terrorist activity in Europe. I mean, the the mass rapes, (laughs) beheadings, whatnot, I mean... That's not acceptable. That's well, I don't. I don't think. I don't country. think anybody has ever argued that it's acceptable. But, but, but setting all that aside, even if all of that is true, and we take it for for the sake of argument, how does that apply to whether or not a religious group should be allowed to rent a venue to come together for a community event? Well, they should be allowed. But I, I completely agree with you. I think somebody should be there to see what is going on i see what you're saying all right appreciate the thoughts appreciate the input terry let's talk to paul in rosemont welcome to the program well thank you for taking my call i caught part of the last end of the conversation i've, I've listened to you off and on when my schedule allows and I, I i like the show and i i think your input's pretty good usually on this part i i have to i have to disagree with maybe where you're standing, and I have to ask, also ask you where your understanding of Islam is and and how many people from the Muslim Somali, for instance, community that you know and how much time you've spent in the communities in Minnesota that have been overrun with Somalis uh, and the issues and the problems that abound from, let's, let's just, stay with Somalians for right now, uh, because to call Islam a religion of peace, it, first of all, it's a farce, and it's 
Islam is no, is not a religion. It started out as a religion, and then it turned into a political move, and then it became a military movement when people didn't buy into it centuries ago. So we can't continue to call Islam a, a religion of peace because it's not a religion. It's a military movement, and if you study the Quran and you study the back history, it, it, there's no peace in it. It's either you're with us or we will take your life or we will take your property and you can submit by one of two means either pay with your life or pay money so we you can't be considering this a, a, a movement of peace and I just I, I, I don't know how much time you've spent studying this or how close you've been but I happen to be very close to a community that has a lot of Somalians and the issues are off the chart, the criminal behavior, the threats, uh, the open willingness to state that we're going to take over this community and be cutting your heads off in five years. It's, it's not a joke. It's there, and it's there all the time. So the, you packed a lot into there, and the, the root or the core of what I, I hear you asking is what's my my overall take on Islam and how is it informed? And the short answer, in order to fit it into the format that we're working with here, the short answer to the question is, I'm not in the business of defining other people's faiths. So this idea that there's some real Islam out there, that if only I, as a non-believer of Islam, I, as a uh, a Christian, could discover through the reading of a book that I do not consider to be holy scripture. The idea that I'm going to come to some understanding of what Islam really is strikes me as patently absurd. I am not a Muslim and have no intention of becoming one. So the idea that I'm going to somehow be able to define what Islam means strikes me as a, a fool's errand, something that I could never achieve. What I, I am capable of judging. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean, I don't think that you need to, go that far into it, but I think understanding where exactly it comes from and what its foundations are and what it actually means to us Christians, also known as infidels in their world, uh, is really important, especially if you're going to defend them or... Well, I'm defending them. I'm defending them on very specific terms. That what I'm defending is not their their theological beliefs or their eschatology or the the history of their faith. None of that is would even be worthy of my stepping forward to attempt to defend. I'm defending something very specific and very limited, and that's their constitutional right to assemble, speak, and worship. Until a person takes a specific action that violates somebody else's rights or breaks the law, I, I don't see the premise upon which I can say, well, you know, looking at a historical analysis of where your religion has been, we're going to preemptively determine that you should be regarded as a criminal suspect and that you should have several rights denied to you because of your faith. Oh, and, I, and I have to agree with you there. I, and I, like I said, I missed the first part of the conversation, but, and I, again, but to, to suggest that uh, an Islamic gathering is that of, of peace kind of contradicts. Well, I mean, look, I, and first of all, just to clarify, just to clarify, I never said Islam is a religion of peace. That was one of the callers. But, right, no, but, be, that, that, but yeah. be that as it may, be that as it may, 
this gathering objectively was peaceful. And so, you know, the the things that were said about it, the rhetoric that was put out there about what's coming to U.S. Bank Stadium, what's coming to Minneapolis and what it means and what its implications are, you know, that it's a show of power and that it's a, it's a, a display of dominance and there's going to be animal sacrifice and blood in the stadium and what have you. None of that panned out to be even remotely true. And I'm a big fan of judging things based upon how they actually manifest and judging people based upon their actions rather than somebody else's subjective interpretation of their beliefs. I appreciate your call, Paul. Appreciate the input. Closing argument, talking about this a lot longer than I thought we were going to be. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. 9 to 11 weeknights. We can be found on this air. 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin taking your calls and producing the show. Let's continue with your comments. Elliot in St. Louis Park. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Um, long-time listener, I uh, really enjoy your show. You really do cut to the chase on things. Um, that. I think there's two separate issues when it comes to what happened today. Mm-hmm. Um, issue number one is the right of people to gather together for a religious gathering, Correct. which if we were to limit that, we would basically be undoing the core of our country. Right. Which, which um, ironically, hand, if I could just if I could just take a moment to highlight yeah. that point, which ironically is the exact concern raised with why we ought to be so upset about Muslims in America that they're going to undermine the core of our country, and so the prescribed solution is let's beat them to the punch. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of doing it. Um, the the other point though is is that you mentioned that the idea of assimilation when it comes to the Muslims. But the the problem is is that it really goes to the heart of the celebration. I, I'm assuming you know what the AIDS celebration is about, but I'm just going to mention it for the rest of your list in case they don't. They're celebrating that Abraham brought Ishmael up to the uh, up the mountain, mm-hmm. and God told him to uh, not to sacrifice him. So essentially, they've replaced the binding of Isaac with the binding of Ishmael. And that kind of is a, is a problem. I mean, I'm, I'm an observant Jew, and it pretty much, you know, turns my entire religion on its head. Now, when you consider the fact that we're largely a Judeo-Christian nation, and uh, basically our religions, your, your Christianity, Judaism, are essentially rooted in the Old Testament mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that they're completely uprooting it they're basically their core belief is a negation of our core beliefs. So what are we and to so, do about that? That's that's the problem. There there there's a choice that has to be made by them, which is do we coexist or do we fight? What does and, co does, well hold on just a second. Does coexisting necessitate that they change their view of what Abraham did on that mountain. In other, in other words, 
I mean, to me, when we talk about the core of what America is and we, we cite the freedoms of, of speech and assembly and association and religion and all these things, at the heart of it really is the idea of coexisting, real tolerance, true, actual tolerance, coexisting in spite of fundamental disagreements, in spite of having uh, different uh, philosophies, different priorities, in, right. in terms of how we govern ourselves and what we believe about God and our world, that we're nonetheless able to exist peacefully because we have these these separations that we you know refer to as individual rights that bar us from harming one another. And so I'm right. I'm unclear as to how. It, yeah, go ahead. You also have you also have the Crusades where Christians decided that their faith was paramount, and they went and moved against Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And you also have a tremendous history, unfortunately, of the Arab world in the name of Islam wiping out huge areas and territories of people. So let's not, so, so let's not do that. Let's not allow that. I don't hear anybody advocating for that type of action. No, I'm not, I'm not advocating. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is that Islam is essentially a binary religion. You can decide to either fight everybody mm -hmm. or, or or live free. And the the decision is very much an active decision going on, it seems, with within within the Islamic community at any given point in time. And so I don't have a problem with them gathering and all that, but when we think about are they going to assimilate, it's a not quite as simple as simply assimilation. It has to decide whether or not they're going to interpret their core beliefs as being they have to kill everybody else or not. And with the advent of Sharia law, if if they decide they want to go with Sharia law, then there is only there is no uh, way to coexist. Well, I agree with you in terms of you know if they decide to supplant political power and to to implement some sort of theocracy that's a problem but again i don't know that i i can't point to anybody who disagrees with that like there is no constituency that would be like okay you guys can have our country now like that's not even it's not even a possibility in my mind that's why i don't understand the concern about it the notion that we're somehow we're going to give up our courts we're going to give up our constitution we're going to set aside our law and lay down our individual rights because Islam's here, I, I don't see how that could possibly happen in the United States of America when, because I know, I know I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to submit to it. You're not going to submit to it. Brad's not going to submit to it. None of our listeners are going to submit to it. There would be an so immediate uprising. What happened in England? You tell me what happened in England. <laughs> I'm I'm I, I'm not I'm not savvy enough to know these things. I figured I would ask you, and you would tell me what happened in England. Because, <laughs> well, here's the problem with England, and here's the problem with all. This is why I don't like the European comparisons. Okay. Europe, Europe started out with a handicap. At, at the reason we're here and they're there, like historically, you want to talk about history. The reason the United States of America separated from our European heritage is specifically because Europe lacks and, and failed to adopt the philosophy of individual rights and liberties and freedoms that have, that have, be, have become the creed. The, you, know, you talk about the core of what America is. That's what America is. It runs through our veins. It's, it's 
definitional to our heart and soul of who we are. Right. And it's not over in Europe. I don't, I'm not at all surprised that, you know, a bunch of people who, who have the, the flighty, moral, relativistic values of the Europeans allow themselves to be taken over by a, a foreign culture and foreign ideas because they don't, they don't have any roots in the ground. They can't weather the storm because they're not rooted in anything. We are. You, you're not coming up against my liberty because I'm going to physically, literally fight for it. And that's true of virtually every man, woman, and child in this country. And so that's why well, I'm not concerned about what happens in left. Europe. But the, okay, so what do you think? So you think the left is going to, you think that, that the left is going to let the handmaid's tale manifest as long as the purveyors are Islamic in nature? You know, I think that there's a legitimate fear that what happened there can happen anywhere. Uh, I appreciate the call, Elliot. We are short on time. I, I don't know that I'm interested in letting fear dominate my analysis. I just it's it just seems like an unhealthy place to live for me to be to be stuck in to wake up as you know a lot of the folks who are leading this thing online leading this thing on Twitter the concern about it and, and on Facebook and what have you seem to be they seem to be living in a perpetual state of fear and loathing and anticipation of the worst case scenario and it has to be profoundly unhealthy like you get up in the morning and the first thing you think of is where are the muslims at where are the muslims huh? What a horrible way to live your life. And I refuse to do that. Because to my mind, that's part of liberty. Part of liberty is living free from fear. And the only way to do that is to adopt an optimistic orientation towards the future, which is enabled by having faith in yourself and your community and your society that you are going to do what you are going to be vigilant. You are going to do what it takes to secure your rights when they are actually threatened. And once they are, when they're actually threatened, you bet you're going to have to hold me back. Okay. If somebody starts actually clamping down on the ability of me to express my faith or to secure my values or to pursue my happiness, you guys are going to be the ones having to hold me back from taking action in defense of my rights. But that hasn't happened. It hasn't. And so acting as though it is happening because people come to a stadium to pray, counterproductive in my view. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. All right. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's get Barry from St. Paul. Let's get his comment in here. Appreciate you calling the program, holding for as long as you did. Thanks, Walter. So I don't understand them. It's, it's, it's very short and very easy to understand. Muslims are no different than any other people in the world. There are people in every religion and every thought class, you, you know, taking the Green Movement, taking... Any idea you have, okay, that will take it too far and think that their belief and their ideas about what they believe makes it okay for them to affect somebody else's life in an unconstitutional way, okay? There's there's all kinds of people, and everybody knows somebody like that or has heard of somebody like that. Mm -hmm. And for people to think 
that that isn't possible and and Muslims is just absurd. And to say that all Muslims are like that is even more absurd because that's like saying all Christians are like right. that because we all know that isn't true. Right. And for people to think anything else other than that is just absurd if you're an American because we believe in individual rights and judging people based on an individual basis. And yeah. if you don't, go somewhere else. Yeah. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the thoughts, Barry. Appreciate you calling in the program. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the bottom line for me is I don't... Th- I struggle to comprehend, and I'm not trying to be condescending in putting it this way. I legitimately struggle to comprehend the mindset whereby you feel even the impulse, the need to to have some other group to project all of your your concerns and your woes upon and to to be concerned about. And, you know, so much of what we talk about here on the program, when we talk about the left, when we talk about self-identified progressives, when we talk about the politics of conquest and the culture of grievance and the identity politics, the, the through line through all of it is the subjugation of the individual in order to cram them, shoehorn them into a cookie-cutter mold of what a member of a group is supposed to be. If you're black, you're supposed to be like this. If you're a woman, you're supposed to be like that. If you're gay, then we know everything important about you in terms of who you are and what your value is and where you fit in the social hierarchy. We could determine all of that by looking at one aspect of your identity. That is bigotry. It's bigotry when the left does it. It's bigotry when some random individual does it. And it's bigotry when folks who identify on our side, whether it's identifying with our religion, identifying as Christian, or identifying as conservative, or as identifying as Republicans, direct that type of process towards Muslims and try to say, well, you know, looking back, and, and it's, it's a multidimensional generalization. You're going to take something that literally happened thousands of years ago and hold people who are living today responsible for it. How is that any different than when the left says, you owe me money? I'm black. A lot of you are white. You owe me money because of slavery. Right? Like, how is it different? If let me Let me rephrase it, because this is true. This is a true statement. If, in fact... A Muslim living today properly ought to be regarded as suspect because of what Muhammad did thousands of years ago or because of what some other Muslim did on the other side of the planet, then you owe me a check for slavery. Because if once we've bought into this idea that the individual doesn't matter, it's only the group power dynamic, then the left is one. We might as well hang it up. We might as well buy in you know, and, and start just signing on board with the politics of conquest and the culture of grievance and develop our own intersectional oppressed minority coalition and fight the left over the spoils of war. You know, I mean, that's if that's what we've come to, then what's the point? What are, what are we even arguing for anymore? What are we even fighting for when we talk about restoring the republic, when we talk about protecting the Constitution, when we talk about upholding Western values? What are we even talking about? If we're going to subscribe to these ideas that subordinate the individual to a group expectation. All right, so here's the quick rundown of everything we didn't talk about tonight. 
that we're going to have to come back to tomorrow. Michael Cohen flipped on Donald Trump. He cut a plea deal, and he's he's tipping his hand that he has things to potentially give to Robert Mueller in the ongoing investigation of potential Russian collusion. And, of course, in response to this, you have a lot of non-statements so far, at least you know up to the minute that I was preparing for the show, from uh, the White House. And look, this, this presents a real, a really problematic legal and political situation for the president. There's no question. And at, at the same time, we need to take what Cohen is saying with a huge grain of salt because he's operating in the context of this thing called, oh, I can't remember the phrase off the top of my head, compelled testimony, incentivized testimony. Yeah. That's what it is. Incentivized testimony, where obviously he is getting something of value in exchange for testifying against Trump. But that doesn't mean what he's saying isn't true. It doesn't. And that's the thing, that we have to be, as observers, as people who are trying to be honest about what's taking place here, if we're actually concerned with the truth, which I think is kind of a big deal, then we have to recognize the multiple different dimensions of this in terms of how we potentially are being can be misled one way or the other and all of the different motives that are in play i have no idea what direction this is ultimately going to go trump has weathered every storm up through this one and you know he i i could go 50 50 he either continues to weather it or this finally puts a chink in the armor we'll see keith ellison endorsed by the dfl i really wanted to talk about this tonight we'll get into it tomorrow this whole power dynamic stuff of how the the left doesn't actually care about victims at all, and they really just care about the the way that they can leverage a victim's grievance in order to affect their political ends. It's really coming to bear and is bearing itself is really obvious and out there in this Ellison situation and others. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.